Well, good morning. Welcome to the Adult Sunday School this morning. And we trust the Lord's blessing uh, to be upon us. There are uh, two pages of notes on the table, and uh, you'll need both pages for this morning. I didn't get a chance to put them all together with a paperclip, and so there's two piles, um, page one and two, and then the other pile is page three and four. And so we're taking a break from, I suppose, the events of history. We're going to look at a more theological subject, historical theology, in one aspect, I suppose, uh, dealing with the canon of Scripture. How did we get the Word of God in the form that we have it today? Uh, dealing with some of those matters and uh, considering it, it's really a summary. Uh, the canon of Scripture is a vast subject. Uh, we could then move into uh, different manuscripts, manuscripts that were found here and there and uh, things were compiled together. Uh, we could deal with all the extra books uh, that were penned in the early church that the church had to make the decision on. Was this book scripture? Was it inspired by God? Should it be included in the canon of scripture or should it not? And there are numerous books and then various early church figures had their lists of books and so they rec some recognized one particular canon similar to the canon we have in the New Testament today but there's extra books that we wouldn't recognize and there are varying lists uh, and bit by bit they come to the list uh, that we have in our New Testament today. Uh, those books that were recognized. And so uh, you can understand dealing with all of that is quite lengthy. Dealing with all those lists uh, can be very repetitive as well. And so we're not dealing uh, with that particular aspect in this study uh, this morning or even next week. Uh, we'll leave that to the side. But to give you an understanding that uh, that is how things developed. Uh, but we're going to uh, come uh, to the Word of God this morning. We're going to read 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And the verse 15. Familiar verses to us. And that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And then we'll move across to Second Peter chapter 1, and verses 19 to 20. Again, familiar verses when we're dealing with the subject of Scripture. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God speak as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Amen. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let us unite together in prayer. And let us seek the Lord 
Our Father and our God, we come to thee this morning, thankful for thy goodness, thy mercy, thy grace toward us, and that we can gather on the first day of the week to worship thee. We thank thee, Father, for the subject we have before us today. We rejoice that we have a tried, tested, and proven canon of Scripture. We thank thee we can rest assured that this is the revelation of God that the early church believed in, that thou didst indeed give to thy people and to this world. And Father, as we consider these things today, we pray that thou would bless us, that we would understand these truths, would realize the importance of knowing that the word of God is sure and that it is inspired by thee. Apply these truths to our hearts, we pray. Give us a longing for thy word, a desire for thy truth, that it would not merely go into our ears and into our minds, but as the Westminster Divine spoke about, it would go into our hearts, it be rooted within our hearts, and we would see that fruit within our lives. Father, bless us and do our hearts good. Remember the children downstairs also, bless them, meet their needs, and may they know uh, the outpouring of thy spirit there as well. And we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. <coughs> Amen. The end of the period of persecution that the early church faced ushered in a new era of liberty and freedom. It was no longer a crime to be a Christian. It was no longer a threat to your life to attend worship and to worship the living and true God of heaven. And while at this point Christianity was not the state religion, uh, there was freedom to practice your faith. But however, there is a vital subject that must be considered before we move into the age of Constantine and consider the changes that came upon the church. And it is a subject that affects the very foundation of the church of Christ. How do we actually know that our Bible is the true and accurate Bible? How do we know that? And we're not talking here of Bible versions and translations and comparing the King James Version to the NIV or something like that, but rather it's a question about the canon of Scripture, the word canon referring to a collection of books that we classify as genuine. Canon meaning that rule, that straight line. And so how do we know that the 66 books we have in our Bibles today are the exact 66 books that God inspired and gave to his church. That is a big subject. It is something that needs to be considered and understood by the church today. And there are those who will argue that it was the emperor himself, Constantine, who defined the canon of scripture, who formed the Bible as we have it today. But that view is mistaken. Constantine came upon the scene around 300 AD, give or take a few years either side, he became emperor. And of course, as we will consider next week, we've mentioned it already, how he came to the throne and how he converted to Christianity. We'll see that in more detail later on. But the doctrine of scripture is a foundational doctrine of Christianity. It was important in the early church and they needed to understand and believe and compile what they knew to be the word of God. 
It is a foundational doctrine, and by that we mean that our belief and understanding of Scripture is being inspired by God, and therefore being the infallible, inerrant, sufficient, and true Word of God is an important foundation for our faith. Because if we are wrong on the definition and the identification of Scripture, then we will be wrong on other truths and doctrines. And we can understand that, can we not? If we are wrong understanding what the Word of God is, its inspiration, its authority, if we are wrong in understanding what books compile the Word of God, then that sets in motion a process of error throughout everything that we believe because there will be books that we set aside that contain the truth and we will ignore those things. We could, for example, think about 1 Corinthians. If we believe that 1 Corinthians was not inspired by God and is not part of our New Testament, we set that aside. And what doctrine is prominent in that book that we hold to as a denomination? Well, head covering. And of course, we see the Lord's table there and other doctrines as well. But we set aside then the doctrine of the head covering. If we then believe that certain books are inspired and they are not, then we will accept their teachings. And that sends us down a path where our doctrine and our belief will be very different. Believing things we ought not to believe and not believing things that we ought to believe. And therefore, it is important to know that we are founded upon the right Word of God, the right books, the correct canon of Scripture. And so the quick answer to this question about knowing if we have the true Bible is that the Church of Christ has historically believed that a particular set of writings compose the Old and New Testament Scriptures. There was a general consensus that the 66 books which comprise our English Bible today are those that were inspired by God. The books comprising the Old Testament already being accepted by the Jews prior to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we have that tendency then to accept the Old Testament Scriptures, those 39 books. The Jews accepted it. We see the Jews and Christ and the disciples accepting that. And therefore, we don't really delve too much into should Ezekiel be in the Word of God or not, because that question has been answered many, many years ago. And so coming into the period of the New Testament church, what then comprises Scripture? What books should be added? We have Paul's writings. We have the writings of the apostles. We have other writings that uh, we do not accept as the Word of God today. But going back to the early church, was this writing Scripture or not? And of course, uh, there were those issues with the Old Testament in the sense of the Apocrypha and those uninspired books. We'll come to that later on. But the major emphasis then this morning is about the New Testament Scriptures. Which of the writings from the early church should be included in what was then the expanding canon of Scripture, consisting of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and the New Testament? And the early church considered the Hebrew Scriptures to be the Word of God, and they had received the oracles of God, had compiled their Scripture, and the New Testament church recognized that. They recognized that the Old Testament still had a relevance and a purpose today for them. Gone were the sacrifices. Gone were the rituals, all fulfilled in Christ. But the Scripture remained. When we look at uh, the 
readings that we had earlier is speaking about the scriptures. That word scripture in the context would refer to the Old Testament scriptures. They were not rejected. They were believed. When Paul wrote to Timothy, there was no New Testament as we have it today. The same uh, regarding Peter. There was no New Testament in the form that we have it today. And so the context is the Old Testament scriptures. Whereas we today would consider the New Testament as being a part of that emphasis and application of that word scripture. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Paul meant the Old Testament in the context. And we take that to mean all the old and the new. All scripture that God has given to look forward in the words of the apostle is inspired by him. And the word of God has a blessed unity. Some will teach that the Old Testament has been replaced by the teaching of the New Testament because of the death and resurrection of Christ. In some ways, the ceremonies have, as we've said, but the Old Testament is not to be discarded. And the Old Testament of the Jews is the New Testament or the Old Testament of the Christian believer. During the New Testament period, we find that Christ and others quoted from the Old Testament there is no dispute in the New Testament as to the canon of the Old Testament scriptures. Paul did not spend time debating whether Jeremiah or Ezekiel or the book of Psalms should be part of the word of God. It was settled long before. The many disagreements between Christ and the religious leaders of the land. Uh, there were many disagreements on the application of the word and, and what the word meant and taught. But never on the subject of what books should comprise the word of God. After the, the ascension of the Lord Jesus, together with the outpouring of the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost to initiate the New Testament church, a new phase of revelation began. They relied on the authority of the divinely inspired Hebrew scriptures, but they were conscious of being the recipient of new truth concerning Christ and the Christian mission in the world. And God was the source of this truth. Justin Martyr, whom we've mentioned before, resolutely affirmed for I choose to follow not men or men's doctrines but God and the doctrines delivered by him God the father passed on this truth to his son thus he should be followed as the only true and steadfast teacher the word of God our Lord Jesus Christ the truth of Christ was passed to his apostles who then proceeded under the inspiration of the spirit to write a revelation that is inseparable from the previous Old Testament revelation. Polycarp urged obedience to Christ, just as he himself has commanded us, as did the apostles who preached the gospel to us, and the prophets who announced in advance the coming of the Lord. And so there was to be this belief that there was a new revelation that was additional to the old. So the collection of Hebrew scriptures was expanded to include writings by the apostles and those who wrote under the superintendence of the apostles, such as Mark and Luke. And some of those writings themselves pointed to an expansion of the canon of scripture. Peter spoke of the letters of the apostle Paul in the context of other scriptures, 2 Peter 3, 14 to 15. And so the earliest Christian writings outside of the New Testament continue this practice of elevating the words of Christ and the writings of the apostles, recognizing in them the authority of divine revelation. 
Polycarp referred to Ephesians 4.26 in one of his works as Scripture. And early on in the early church, Polycarp was recognizing that the apostle was inspired and considered some of his works as Scripture. Not everything Paul wrote would have been Scripture. And we need to understand that because Scripture was given by Paul being divinely inspired. And he would not have been divinely inspired in every single thing that he wrote. And so we have books in Scripture that are seen to have this, this authority and this divine inspiration. But they would not be every single thing written by these inspired men. Every single inspired thing written by those men. And so in the early church, some of the writings of Christ were, some of the writings of the apostles were seen as Scripture, as Scripture. And that was important. As the church developed and they received the writings of the apostles, there was reverence given to them. There was authority given to them. The letters of Paul were written by an apostle clearly invested with divine authority and they were recognized as belonging to canonical scripture. We can think about the letter to the Hebrews. Many believe Paul wrote it, although the author is anonymous. When we think of Mark and Luke being placed alongside the Gospels written by Matthew and John, there's a letter of Barnabas, there's a book called The Shepherd of Hermas. They enjoyed widespread circulation in the early church. What about them? Should they be in the scriptures? And debate began to arise as to what books should be recognized. And it became critical whenever false teachers and prophets appeared. Marcion claimed that there was an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. We've considered that. His canon of scripture consisted of the gospel and the apostle. A mutilated version of the gospel and of Luke and ten letters of Paul. He rejected the entire Old Testament and all parts of the growing New Testament that reflected favorably upon the Old Testament. And the early church was rightly concerned about his views. They recognized that his restricted canon of Scripture fostered his heretical theology. And therefore, if we believe something is wrong in Scripture, we set up our own cult, our own sect. What is our Scripture going to be? We're going to remove those Scriptures that we do not agree with, that we're moving against. We're moving against. That's why many of these cults have their own version of scripture, their own book that they perhaps have edited and changed or a book written by their founder that they hold in the highest esteem, like the Book of Mormon. And therefore, they have their scripture, their writings that come above the word of God. And those writings have to teach their doctrines because they need a book, a foundation, a source for what they believe. And so the church then turned to the defining, to defining the canon of Scripture. This is a process that happened over many years. Two key criteria emerged to determine what writings to include in the canon. Firstly, does this writing have an apostle for its author? Is there apostolic authority? Paul's letters, the Gospels of Matthew and John. It's very clear who wrote. If not, then is an apostle associated with this writing? 
Mark's gospel records the account of the apostle Peter. Uh, that is what is believed. Mark wrote Peter's gospel. And then secondly, has the church historically recognized God speaking to his people in this writing? The church sought to recognize and affirm those authoritative, inspired writings that God intended for inclusion in his word. In other words, the book of Matthew, has it been a blessing to the church? Has it spoken to individuals? Has it been used of God in a special way? Has the church realized and recognized that God has used this book to instruct his people, to bless his people spiritually? And so they ought to they sought to recognize those books in which God was speaking to his people. The Westminster Divine set forth their belief concerning the canon of the word of God. Chapter 1 deals with scripture and we have sections 2 to 3. And section 2 under the name of Holy Scripture or the word of God written are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testament which are these. And I'm not going to read that list. You have it in your notes. You have it in your Bible. And uh, maybe uh, you've memorized it. Maybe this would be a good time to stop and uh, to ask for someone to recite all 66 books of the Bible in order. And then just to check you know them well, we could ask you to say them all backwards from Revelation to Genesis. Uh, but we won't do that. Uh, we won't do that. They're there in front of you. And uh, we know these books. And they're not up for debate uh, within our church and denomination. And then it says, all which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. And then thirdly, the books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of Scripture and therefore are of no authority in the church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. And so the Apocrypha... <coughs> The Apocrypha is not part of Scripture. Those writings, we'll come to that in a moment. It has been said for historical information. It is good to look at them and good to read them, but not for spiritual edification. Not for spiritual edification. You would read the newspaper for information, but you wouldn't read the newspaper for spiritual edification, unless it was a Christian newspaper containing, containing devotions and sermons and things like that. And so these books are for information. They are not for our spiritual edification. And those books, the 66 books, are therefore not a selection from all of God's inspired writings. We're not looking at a vast number of inspired writings and taking 66 of the best and putting them in the Bible. But rather the church has recognized that these are the books that have been inspired. 66 have been inspired and therefore preserved by him for the blessing of his church. And this brings us to the thought of the preservation of scripture. Man hates the word of God. Man seeks to destroy it, but God guards it and protects it and maintains it. And oh, how wonderful it is that the word that we hold in our hands has been preserved by him. Preserved through the generations of the Old Testament. Preserved through the New Testament. Preserved through the persecutions of the early church to come to us today that we can read it and learn from it and believe it and know the assurance of salvation. 
And we also have confidence that what we possess is the full and complete canon of Scripture. And therefore, that gives us as the Church of Christ confidence in preaching and in believing and in reading and in evangelizing because that completed canon is our authority. It's what we build upon. The whole ministry of the Church of Christ is founded upon His Word. And it is important to know that word is complete because then we know that we can have a confidence in preaching, a confidence in standing up and proclaiming the truth. Thus and thus saith the Lord. Because if it wasn't complete and we were adding new revelation all the time, things can change. But we can rest assured that the message that Christ preached and the message the apostles preached, the message... The early church preached and the reformers preached is the message that we preach today because God's word has not changed. It is a completed canon and it has been used by him over the centuries to bless his church and to build his church. And therefore, dear believer, we have that blessed confidence to evangelize. We're not going out evangelizing as it were standing on, standing on ice. I've had the experience since I've come to Canada of walking on ice and I mean I've over the years you know watched cartoons and television and people walk on ice and then suddenly the ice starts to crack and they end up falling in and I was a little skeptical of walking on ice uh, but as I walked across one of the lakes in Alberta well I knew yeah it's, go it's going to hold my weight it's a marvelous thing it can hold me. Uh, the ice was so thick. It's amazing walking out there, seeing the lake, seeing the water. And then a few months later, you're standing walking on water or walking on solid water. But yet, have we not all walked on ice at some stage, whether it's a puddle, whether it's as a mailman delivering to someone's house? And I remember before I hurt my ankle, I walked across some ice. The ice cracked and there was a big puddle of water underneath it. And it often doesn't hold our weight, but we know when it's solid. You can go to Lake Louise and see those who are there skating and doing activities on the frozen lake. But you know, when we think of the Word of God, we need to stand upon it. It's a firm foundation. It's like Lake Louise frozen in the middle of winter. It can hold your weight. It can support your activity. It can back you up. You don't need to go out there and play hockey and be concerned if the ice will crack underneath you and you'll end up in the cold icy waters underneath the ice trying to find your way back up again. We as a church can rest secure on that. But yet there are others who have their own ideas and their own doctrines outside the word of God their own scriptures outside the word of God like the cults and they're standing on ice that is thin and ice that is brittle and it's going to break and can I say as well that as the Christian we are to stand on that solid ice that it will not break because if we neglect the word of God, 
we ignore the word of God, if we do not apply it to our lives by his spirit and believe in the completeness of the canon and believe in all that God has given to us and rest assured on that and know we're standing on solid ground, why will, in our minds, we're standing upon that ice that's going to crack and break. And do you believe that God has given us his word? We need to stand assured upon it, believing it. It gives us confidence. It gives us joy. It gives us energy to go out and to serve him. To go out and serve him. And so, in these New Testament books that we accept as inspired scripture, we see then that there is a divine quality. We can perhaps overlook this, but books written by God have evidence of their divine origin. The reformers referred to this as divine quality or indicators. In Psalm 19, Romans 1 verse 20, uh, we won't uh, turn to those, uh, but we see God's attributes revealed in the created world, in natural revelation, and so we would expect to see such attributes revealed in God's special revelation, the word of God revealing who God is. And we see the beauty and excellency of the word of God, its power and efficacy, its unity and harmony. And those verses, for the sake of time, uh, we can let you look at those yourselves. But scripture has a unified message. There's no contradictions. There's no errors. And it's through those qualities that we can recognize the voice of Christ speaking through his word to us. And the non-believer will reject these qualities because they see scripture as a man-made book without supernatural power. There's a corporate reception building upon this thought. There's not merely divine quality recognized by the individual believer, but it's recognized collectively by the church of Christ. There will be pockets of disagreement, but the predominant consensus is that these are the books that God has inspired. And there's a wonderful thought. God has guided and led his church as the great king and head of his church into accepting the books that he has inspired. And another question needs to be asked is this. What influence did the Roman Emperor Constantine exert over the canon of Scripture? There are accusations that Constantine was instrumental in forming the Word of God, in bringing the canon together. And so, our Bible is man-made. Our Bible was created by a Roman Emperor who converted to Christianity. A conversion, some would say, is maybe not the truest conversion at all. So, did this emperor compile the word of God? Did he decide what books are in the scriptures? He called the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. We'll come to that in due course. But that council dealt primarily with the history of Arianism. And again, we'll come to that. And the heretical belief that Christ was a created being rather than the eternal Son of God. That was the issue at Nicaea. A council called by Constantine, and they did not discuss the canon of Scripture. It was not an issue. It was not something that urgently needed to be decided. It was not on the agenda for discussion. The Council of Carthage was held in 397 AD after Constantine had died. And an undisputed decision then was taken on the canon of Scripture as we know it today. And so... This came after his death. And of course you could say, well then he influenced it before he died and they just rubber stamped what he 
had said you have to use as the canon of Scripture. Well, the large majority of these books were already accepted as inspired Scripture long before Constantine was born. The early Christian historian Eusebius tells us that the writings of the apostles and Paul as well were accepted as Scripture early on in the history of the church. And you'll remember I said about those lists. There were different church leaders and fathers in the early days of the church accepted certain books as canonical. And the bulk of our New Testament would have been in those lists, among some other books that were later rejected. And so the general consensus in the early church prior to Constantine and rubber-stamped after Constantine was the acceptance of a canon of Scripture that was almost identical to what we have today. There are also authoritative authors. These books were written by God's chosen agents, his inspired prophets and apostles. In Romans 1 it says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so there's this reminder, the prophets wrote the Scriptures, the apostles are the, mo the modern day prophets in the sense of the early church, they were to write the word. And of course, the apostles were Christ's witnesses who had authority. And Mark 3, 14, and he ordained 12. Matthew 10, verse 20, and he ordained 12 with the purpose of going forth and preaching. He said about his apostles, Luke 10, 16, he that heareth you, heareth me, and he that despiseth you, despiseth me, and he that despiseth me, despiseth him that sent me. So therefore, they went forth on the authority of Christ, representing Christ. And therefore, as the prophets of old, they were authoritative authors. And there's a blessed message. The message of Christ and his gospel. Search the scriptures, the Savior said. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And the true canon of scripture is what? It's that collection of books that testifies of Christ. That sets forth the Savior. That reveals him in his beauty and his wonder and his splendor. So we can rest assured, this is a summary looking at this subject, but we can rest assured that the canon of Scripture, this issue within the early church, was resolved, and these books that we have today are believed by the church to be the inspired New Testament books that God has given. And so we come to the Apocrypha, a collection of uninspired, uncanonical literature from the Old Testament and intertestamental times. That word intertestamental means the time period between Malachi and the narrative in Matthew of Christ being born. The intertestamental period is about 400 years, thereabouts. And arguments have been made to include it in Scripture. The Roman Catholic Church accepts these books, whereas the Protestant Reformed Church rejects them on the basis that they were never accepted in the Hebrew Scriptures and were never endorsed by the Lord or his apostles. These books are included in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But the, believe, the Reformers believe their scriptures should be based on the actual Hebrew New Testament. And as a result, then these books were rejected. It is interesting that when the authorized version, the King James Bible, was published in 1611, what books were included in it? The Apocrypha. And that is because, that is because it had an Anglican influence. It was authorized by the king. The king was an Anglican. The Anglican Church accepted the Apocrypha to a certain extent. Uh, 
that is an influence from the Roman Catholic Church. And therefore, when the King James Version uh, was first published, many of the Puritans didn't want it. It was Anglican. It was associated uh, with the king. And they were separate from that. They used the Geneva Bible that had its origin in Geneva in John Calvin. And so the King James Version was actually seen as a modern version at the time and was very much uh, rejected because of where it came from and because of the Apocrypha. Uh, but then it was published without the Apocrypha. Uh, it was seen as a very good and excellent translation and the rest is history. And it shows us that, you know, God, as we see in the Word, the word of God as well in the book of Ezra, God can use those who are ungodly for his plans and for his purposes and for the blessing of his people. And so the Apocrypha was believed to not be a foundation for church doctrine. The Roman Catholic Church believed in purgatory, in praying for the dead. Those practices stem from the Apocrypha. And so those practices being unwarranted in canonical scripture then were rejected by the Protestant Church. The Westminster Divines stated, and this is part of our substandards as Free Presbyterians, here in this church in June, I signed that I believe this statement as being part of our confession. The books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine revelation, a new part of the canon of Scripture, and therefore are of no authority in the Church of God, nor to be in any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. And so these books are not to be used to edify you spiritually. You should not go home and do your daily Bible reading and open up the book of Maccabees. Pray God will bless you through this, through this inspired book because it's not inspired. It is to be rejected, although there is a historical aspect and a historical benefit, but no spiritual benefit. The French Confession says something similar. We know these books to be canonical. We, we know uh, these. The French Confession of Faith, after listing the Old and New Testament canonical books, stated, We know these books to be canonical and the sure rule of our faith, not so much by the common accord and consent of the Church, as by the testimony and inward illumination of the Holy Spirit, which enables us to distinguish them from other ecclesiastical books, upon which, however useful, we cannot find any articles of faith. And it's speaking about the Apocrypha. And so the Protestant Church of the Reformation embraced 66 books in the canonical scripture, rejected the Apocrypha, and the Roman Catholic Church re reacted to this in the Council of Trent. It sought to correct the Protestant error and reaffirm the Catholic canon of scripture, including the Apocrypha. And the decree gave this warning, if anyone does not receive as sacred and canonical these books with all their parts as they have been read in the Catholic Church and as they are contained in the old Latin Vulgate edition and knowingly and deliberately rejects the above mentioned traditions, let him be anathema, let him be cursed. And so I'm, I'm cursed this morning, as are uh, you too, hopefully, hopefully. It is a good thing to be cursed for recognizing the true canon of Scripture. And I don't think their curses carry much weight anyway. And so Protestants were threatened with church condemnation for using a Bible without the Apocrypha. And again, this leads into the 
KJV, and we see that there in the notes. It became more accepted later on. So what are these books? Uh, there is a list of some of the apocryphal books uh, there that we have. There are connections uh, to uh, the Old Testament writings. Uh, Jeremiah is mentioned, or as some would refer to him as Jeremy. And uh, we have uh, then the Maccabees, and they were instrumental politically in Israel. And we have uh, Esther, Wisdom of Solomon. So there's a connection to some of the Old Testament history in the Old Testament books. A. A. Hodge, the theologian in his commentary on the Confession of Faith, states that these books have no place in the, Bibli in the biblical canon, that should say, because they never formed part of the Hebrew Scriptures. They were never quoted by Christ or his apostles. They were never embraced, embraced in the list of canonical books by the early church fathers, and the internal evidence disproves their claims. Some consist of childish fables and bad morals. And so there's a lesson for us then to embrace God's canon of Scripture. There's a consistent message. There's clear teaching that is not contradicted. And we are not to take away or add to the Word of God. And how do we add to the Word of God? We add these apocryphal books. We add men's opinions and doctrines to those contained in Scripture. We add additional and incorrect meaning and application to Scripture by having our own little opinions and views and forcing them upon others, holding fast to them ourselves, yet their foundation is not Scripture. By adding to Scripture to exempt ourselves from certain commandments or to justify the breaking of certain commandments, because of a situation we find ourselves in, likely because of our own fault. And how do we do that? Well, we can argue that certain commandments, well, they don't apply to us. They don't apply to us in a particular setting. And we can add to Scripture, well, that doesn't apply to me. That doesn't apply to me in this situation. Therefore, I can break this commandment. You know, this person stole from me. So therefore, I'm going to put on my mask. I'm going to put on my dark clothes. I'm going to hide out in their hedge, wait for them to leave. Then I'm going to go into their house and I'm going to steal from them. And because they did it to me, I'm justified. I'm justified. And there's many other reasons and examples could be given. And there are Christians and believers who think that way because of circumstances. They can break the commandments. And therefore, they're adding to the Word of God their own ideas and their own exemptions. And so, our theology and our beliefs should be formed by the pure Word of God itself. How does the church today know that God will not amend the current Bible with the 67th book? Is the canon closed? And this is a timely question. Because today... In Pentecostal and charismatic circles, there's extra revelation added from the Lord. There are cults, and they've done the same. They've added extra revelation, and scriptural warns we're not to take away and we're not to add. Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 12 tells us this. And so the thought of the canon being closed and completed brings us to consider the cessation of special revelation. In other words, God's special revelation has ceased. That can be the tongues. That can be the, the healing. That can be the prophetic word. Uh, that can be those spiritual gifts we see used in the scriptures that are now claimed in Pentecostal and charismatic circles. And that is the word of God itself. 
It is closed. It is ended. We have the sufficient word. And this view is in direct contrast to the Pentecostal and charismatic belief of continuationism. That God continues to reveal himself in those spiritual gifts and in visions and tongues and healings and prophecies. But belief in cessationism, the spiritual gifts being ceased, gives us a confidence that God has indeed closed the canon of scripture. And that everything in the word is sufficient and necessary for us. We don't need any additional revelation because God has not given it. And we ought to be very careful and discerning about those in charismatic circles who claim all these things regarding extra biblical revelation. And we are to be careful of such movements. We can get caught up in these things. Their music is attractive to many within the Church of Christ. Many young people are attracted by Pentecostal and charismatic music. And they get into it and they get interested in it and they listen to it. And then you find songs written by pastors. Pastor Rachel or uh, Pastor Judith, for example, to use one of the words from uh, the Apocrypha. And then they're exposed to those that equality in the sense of female elders and female pastors and female worship leaders leading in the worship of God, preaching. They're exposed then to all these things of continuationism. And so we are to reject the Pentecostal movement and the charismatic movement. We're to reject their doctrines. We're to expose and resist them. And we are not to have anything to do with them nor their worship. Why? Because that leads us down that road. The canon is not closed. All these things are still happening. But we rest assured as God's people and as his church that the canon of scripture is closed. It is sufficient. It is sufficient for us. So there's a few other comments there regarding uh, continuationism. But let us see what John Calvin says. Christ gives his spirit to the church, not for the task of inventing human unheard of revelations, but of sealing our minds with that very doctrine which is commended by the gospel. So the spirit is not to lead us into new revelation. That has been done. The spirit is to seal our minds with that doctrine that has already been revealed in the completed canon. And so the early church believed in the canon that we have today, it was developed during that time. And so let us hold fast to it. Let us believe it. And not merely the various verses that are within it that fill our hearts, but believe that this entire book, all 66, are part of God's word. And let us hold fast to them for his name's sake. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank thee for thy truth today. We rejoice in it. We pray that thou would give us that steadfastness in worship and being founded upon the word of God. May we believe wholeheartedly in the canon of scripture. May we not veer from one side to the other, but Father, may we rejoice that everything that we need is given to us in thy word to expound, to preach, to teach,
May we reject these other revelations that come from a source that is not the pure and inspired word of God. Father, bless us. Bless us as we come to worship. Do our hearts good, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.